the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. I want to thank my friends at the Rolling Stones for referencing their favorite podcast three times in that classic song. I also want to encourage everyone to follow Stick to Wrestling on Facebook. We have a Facebook discussion page that is wicked cool. Give us 60 minutes and we will perhaps indeed give you a raw bone podcast. Sure, there are some good wrestling podcasts out there. But are they wicked good? I also want to encourage you to follow me on Twitter, where I don't always stick to wrestling. But just put in a search, John McAdam, and follow the guy who has an avatar of two guys fighting with chairs. Be part of my march to a million Twitter followers. And with that, we are going to continue, Sean and I, our conversation with Mr. Bob Parsons, which was very fun and informative. Let's go to that now. I know this is going to be a minority and unpopular opinion, but for as highly regarded as Jerry Blackwell is in hindsight, he just looked like a guy you could get away from with a brisk walking pace. (laughs) I mean, yeah, he can throw a drop kick and he's a wrestler and there is no doubt that he is a really tough guy, but you know, for God's sake, he was valid, man. You know, Blackwell was really good earlier in his career, and for obvious reasons, he really started to fall off. Uh, I I noticed in 86, he was having a really hard time getting around. It's the height thing. It's the, I mean, if he was like 6'3", 6'4", being that big, it'd be be awesome. It'd be like King Kong Bundy. But what was he, Bob? Was he like 5'8", 5'9"? I would say, yeah, exactly. I, I No more than that. At that point, it's not an awesome look. But he had passed through Central States before going to the AWA, and in that little Kansas City ring, he looked like a monster. But that ring was probably four feet shorter than most conventional rings on each side. So a guy like Black Angus Campbell, who's probably 6'4", looked like Andre the Giant. That was part of the fun of Kansas City. That tiny little ring made everybody look enormous. And the the production on that TV was horrible. I mean, it was like wrestling in the dark. I mean, even when things weren't bad, like 82, 83, I mean, you know, get some lights up aimed at the arena. It was like way too dark. Well, the format that Geigel was using for most of the time I was watching Central States, and that would, this would be from... 71 up to probably about uh, late 76 when I left for college was he would be using two or three week old footage from the live shows in Kansas city to set things up very seldom the main event blow off matches, but he had a pretty uh, frugal operation by all reputation. Oh yeah. So anyway, we promised that we we're going to finish up our mailbag, and we've got Bob here to help us out with that. Sean, what's the first question we have? If Starcade 87 gets on pay-per-view with no block from Vince, does it save JCP? I'll defer to somebody who knows what they're talking about. I would speculate. I would certainly think so. That was a very critical time to get maximum exposure, and I don't see how it could have hurt. Save it? Maybe not. Yeah, I was going to say save it, not save it. And let me say why. Um, Dusty Rhodes, every booker has a shelf life, okay? 
by 87, it was pretty clear that Dusty, you know, he was just burned out being Booker. Uh, 88 made that even more clear. And, you know, the company got sold and then Jim Crockett was retained as a consultant. And Jim Crockett would write letters to Jim Hurd or whoever else expressing his opinion that Dusty Rhodes was the only one who could come in and save that company. So if Crockett still owned it and he was still standing by Dusty, there was no turnaround. He just could not see that light. I will tell you that Vince basically killing Starcade 87 was a death blow to WCW. It was like them getting shot in the stomach. And for the next year, they sat there and bled to death until Turner picked it up because they were counting on that money to pay some of the promotions debt, which they had accumulated. They started losing money in 87. And when none of that money came through, that was the end for JCP. Sean, what do you think? Let's focus on the debt, shall we? When we think of this era, I have one image. It's three guys in fur coats, body length fur coats, walking into a Las Vegas resort at 100 degrees. There has to be somebody in the company who looks at that and says, you know what? We may have a business pro- model problem right now. I mean, what, you can't look at how they're operating with their, you know, when Rick was telling you about the jet flying, they were doing that. Yeah. And they that's doing expensive. It's time. Exactly. So, I mean, it's somebody, all this did was expedite that. It was speed up the process. That's all it did. You cannot, you know, you're having these ridiculous concerts in their shows. I mean, they were spending way too much money, and they had to produce at a level that was not sustainable. And second, they had a couple bad months. Bye. Yeah, uh, and plus Crockett uh, moved to a very expensive office in Dallas in 1987. He purchased the UWF for $4 million and certainly did not get his money's worth. Not that he paid the whole thing, but it just wasn't a good idea. And so to answer the question, like it, it definitely would have helped but I don't think it would have saved the promotion. They were self-destructing either way. From Steve Russell, all things considered, who are a couple of guys that you've been around that had the best mind for the business? Or are you, uh, people that you know, you're admirers of or have you've watched the product? Bob, who do you think like great wrestling minds? Currently, David Marquez. The, huh. uh, the boss of championship wrestling from Hollywood. I know David casually. We've interacted several times. He's a smart, smart guy who understands the concept of one's reach exceeding one's grasp. He's on right now, and I'm going to say about 80 markets and in two languages. And he's expanding constantly, and it is a very measured, managed growth. It's not going to run out from under him, and it's not going to roll over the top of him. In my opinion, David Marquez is the best brain in the business right now, which isn't to say he could step into a senior exec role with WWE, but he is making the model of the territory promotion work in 2020, and he's doing a really good job of it. I'm going to have to learn more about Mr. Marquez. I I recognize the name, and when you said, I'm like, oh, he's an indie promoter, but that's all I knew about him. Championship Wrestling from Hollywood is the name of the show, and it would be hard to find a TV market where it isn't on somewhere. Isn't this where Adam Pierce came out of? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he was a, a, a multi-time NWA champion, for you know what it's worth. 
actually, I think David is loyal to the NWA brand and his championships are considered NWA championships. Now I'm not above standing corrected on that, but I know over the years that's come up a number of times. I'm sure the NWA would be thrilled to have it. Well, this is linear NWA going back to yeah, even before my time. Who are the great minds you have uh, that you've been dealt with, John? Let me see. Jim Cornette, obviously. Terry Funk, I mean, just was was nothing short of brilliant when I was around him. Number one, I would say Paulie Dangerously. I've been around Paul a few times, uh, not recently, but I mean, I spent a lot of time with him the night of the 1991 Great American Bash. It was me, Paulie, and a few guys who listened to this podcast. And Paulie was absolutely brilliant. He saw the big picture. He saw the smaller picture. Uh, he had a lot of great ideas. You know, we have this indie show on in the background that's on, you know, has their show on like two in the morning on a Sunday night. And he's picking apart the show, telling us, you know, what's good, what's bad, what needs to be changed, et cetera. He had a, he had a lot of great ideas. I'm going to go on to I, I haven't really been around anybody in the business who I would consider a job, like anybody, just some ECW guys. So I'll I'll move on. <laughs> I can't really okay. think of it. I just have like Eddie Graham and, you know, Bill Watts. So I have no personal stories that would add to it. Watts is brilliant. Oh, I, I, I say overall. Yeah. And the total package. He got the wrestling and the TV. Like guys like George Seal say that Vince McMahon got everything else but the wrestling. Watts once told a story. About being around Vern Gagne, this is in, I want to say, 87, and they were going out and they were going to get Mexican food, and Vern sees a Mexican restaurant, and he goes, let's go here, and Watts is like, no, no, I know I knew a, a really good place a couple of miles up the road, and Vern's like, ah, oh, Mexican food's Mexican food, and Watts says, that's the problem with you, Vern, you think Mexican food is Mexican food, and you think wrestling is wrestling. And at the end of the day, Watts was right. Can you think of anybody who had a better all-around mind for the business as far as like every aspect of it, from the promo, TV, setting up the house shows, everything, just everything? Maybe Jarrett? Maybe Jarrett. I I would still say Bill Watts. I mean, he ran in Louisiana, which has a a little bit of a reputation for being a corrupt state. A little. Yeah, well, uh, and, and he just knew how to get things done. You know, and sometimes that means, you know, uh, whatever, a hundred dollar handshake or probably even more than that on some occasion. But he was making money. And another Watts Vern comparison. I mean, as soon as Watts started losing money, he got the hell out. He had no sentimental attachment to this business. It's like I'm losing money. I'm done. And then on top of it, he managed to get Jim Ross to convince Crockett to buy out his promotion. So no, he didn't get his whole four million, but I think he got like an extra two million, which is nothing to sneeze at, especially in the eighties. No, not at all. Okay, next up from oh, I got a good one for this one from David Winnick, and I apologize if I messed that up. If you could go back in time machine, Bob, with a video camera to film a match that doesn't exist on video, which match would it be? What do you think, Bob? Summer of 1967, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Larry Hennig and Harley Race, eight ball Texas death match against Crusher and the Bruiser. I like that one. <laughs> this is the, the Texas death match I grew up with where a fall ends it and you have 30 seconds to, quote, toe the line. 
and then balls are unlimited. You mean the rules? Yeah. Yes. Okay. We, we've had extended discussions about the flippant way that the WWF treats the Texas death match. It's an abomination in the eyes of a benevolent and loving God. Thank you. <laughs> I've okay, grown I to appreciate them a little more as time has gone on. I got a good one. Saturday night, August 31st, 1957, Akron, Ohio at the Akron Armory. Buddy Rogers versus a young Ray build as Ray Stevenson. Buddy Rogers versus Ray Stevens. Wow. If Stevens had, I mean, if Stevens had enough experience by then, he probably did to have. Oh, he was around for at least six years, but six, seven years by that point. Okay. That's a good one. Oh, that's Uh, a magnificent match. I can't even imagine. And, but keep in mind, Buddy Rogers got out of this match saying, this is one of the greatest I've ever seen about Stevens. Huh. I I would love to see some early career Stevens. It just doesn't seem to be out there, but, uh, I mean, Dave Meltzer, you know, raves about how great Ray Stevens was, like when he was growing up in the uh, early seventies. So before the accident, uh, Bob, what you have a you must have seen Ray. Well, between television, he actually was would work the weekday cards in the smaller towns a lot. So I, I got to see quite a bit of Ray Stevens. I saw a really tremendous match, um, Ray Stevens and Billy Robinson, in my hometown. And they went close to 40 minutes, and it was a clinic. It was just so much fun. When he does, uh, I think Jim Cornette gave a great description of it. The difference between the way Rick does that little flip in the corner, which is Jim calls an homage, which is a great word for it. And the way Ray did it, which is just violent. I mean, he goes hell-bent for leather, head first, ducks at the last second, goes flying up. He does this one number where he flips up. And his head hits the turnbuckle. And then he flips back down again. (laughs) I mean, oh, my God. He must have been. To see this stuff in, like, 1958 in the Akron. Oh. How many people do you think were there? A thousand, maybe? Well, let me just. This is the the card. This is a Thursday night card in Burlington, Iowa. Population between 12 and 13,000. Dusty Rhodes versus Chris Markoff, coincidentally, that was the opening match, and we've already talked about it tonight. Ivan Koloff against Bill Howard. Nick Bockwinkle against Don Morocco, which was an absolute clinic. Morocco was a very lean rookie of the year in the AWA. Bockwinkle was brand new to the territory. Nobody knew a thing about him, and these guys went about 30 minutes. And Bockwinkle didn't cheat once until the pinfall when he grabbed the trunks. And the main event was Billy Robinson against Ray Stevens. And I know there's an argument that Stevens, even in 1972, may have been a little long in the tooth, but they were both fantastic. Oh, and there were 2,600 people there for a town of 12 to 13,000. And I will bet that the town Burlington, Iowa, did not have a lot of surrounding population. No, it's, uh, you know, the whole state is semi-rural. But yeah. It's not like, well, there is such a dearth of things to do in Burlington, Iowa in 1972 that I imagine there were people there who drove 50, 60, 70 miles, but I didn't take a survey, didn't think to ask. So. <laughs> I, I know expand, the feeling. If I can expand on this just for one split second, we've, oh, talked, yeah. about, we've talked about what we would do with respect to 
a single match, but there's a card I'm looking for right now. And it is a Chicago card from March of 1957. Let me just quickly rattle off the lineup. Dory Funk Sr. drew with Joe Blanchard. That's the opening match. Johnny Valentine defeated Eddie Graham. Oof. Reggie Parks drew Killer Kowalski. Lou Fez defeated Bob Geigel. Vern Gagne <laughs> defeated Pat O'Connor. In the main event, Larry Hennig and Harley Race, no contest, Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher. Now, what is amazing to me about that card is how many of those people went on to major management in territory. I would almost rather be a fly on the wall for the behind-the-scenes meeting than in attendance at the wrestling. I think a lot of history was made there. Bob, a quick aside on that, because you brought up a name who, when people think of him, they maybe think the little Leo, the little bald guy with glasses who used to come in to suspend people, Bob Geigel. Bob Geigel was a bad man. In the ring. I mean, he was a realistic-looking, tough, bad man. We've posted clips of him just beating the tar out of people on TV on the uh, on the Facebook page. Another reason to go look. What? Uh, how was? How was? Have you seen Bob Geigel in the ring back when he could? You know, he was still going. Oh, a lot in Central State. He and Bob Brown were fixtures in the Central State, and I always got the same sense from both Geigel and Pat O'Connor that they so realistic in what they were doing and it was probably because they were actually beating the guy up <laughs> they they were both really really tough guys and geigel was just one of these guys and at the same sense i got from a young dusty Rhodes, you could give me an axe handle to fight him and it still wouldn't be a fair matchup because it just looked like it would be impossible to hurt him there's one clip with Geigel from, I think it's 68. I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, it's, uh, Ramirez was the um, the guy's name. Benny. And he ended up being, uh, yeah, he ended up being a referee in uh, St. Louis. And Geigel just torches this guy. And before the match starts, I can't remember the announcer's name was. The announcer goes, we want to keep in mind that the wrestler in the ring has had bleeding problems. Oh, man. Okay, this guy's getting roughed up. They're just setting everybody up for this. And then they just, I mean, he smashes the guy, Geigel. Geigel just smashes the guy's nose. And yeah. I guess someone did it to him the week before, uh, uh, you know, mentioning that, you know, they come out for the interview and he goes, well, what should this wrestler do about his bleeding problem? What's it like? Yeah, like it had nothing to do with Bob's boot. So every time I watch, it, I'm just sitting there wondering what he, I mean, they're sending in Geigel. I'm wondering what he possibly could have done. But this, he had a, just a, I don't, I'm not a big fan of uh, Bob Brown, but Geigel, when you see him from like the 50s and 60s, he is just rough. I mean, the guy is a former Marine, and I think he was a big six champion, wrestling champion, heavyweight, I think, at Kansas State? Iowa State, I think. Okay, he, he's from Algona, Iowa, and there's a little plaque thingy in the town square of Algona, Iowa, commemorating Bob Geigel. And for, both, for whatever reason, very early in his career, he was billed as being from Amarillo, Texas. Texas Bob Geigel. Texas Bob. <laughs> from Algona, Iowa. And we all know Iowa State is a major, major wrestling school. So if you're the heavyweight there, you're good. I mean, and it wasn't just, when I mean realistic, like when he's, it reminded me of the squashes, the old Midnight Express squashes, when they look like they're just messing somebody up, mm -hmm. you know, back mm -hmm. in like 85. That, I mean, it looks like he's torturing this guy. And, then, and it wasn't anything fancy. It was just him you know, hard moves, hard shots, and it, it was really physical. It was kind of an, I was, you know, I'm sitting there thinking of that Magnum TA moment again 
And I wonder if it flipped through Bob's head to do a Harley race on him. Like Harley did to him a few months earlier when he heaved him out of the ring like he was a Frisbee. Oh, you know, Sean, I, I heard you use the phrase bleeding problems from that video. And I'm just somewhere sitting, picturing Vince McMahon listening to this right now going, God damn it, pal. How come we don't have a hemophiliac wrestler? <laughs> <laughs> Another Central States mm-hmm. guy who was clearly passed that he could beat up my dad test was Archie Gouldy, Mongolian stomper. In Central States, he was a well-spoken, more or less babyface, and elsewhere he was a shrieking madman from Outer Mongolia. But he was just Except, a stomper in Kansas City. They had this weird bit in in uh, Memphis where they decided to ha- he grew a mustache and they decided to have him talk. And this lasted a couple months when everyone realized that first of all. Okay, this uh, this Canadian accent doesn't exactly mean you're from Mongolia. So I mean, so they had to shut him up again, and they threw Gorgeous George with him. So yeah, no, he was pretty much silent the entire time, with, with that one exception that I could think of. This was what when he was in Memphis '78. Yeah, I want to say right before he went with Gorgeous George, I think. Okay. So that'd be like '77, right after the maybe the Bob. Yeah, it was like a weird face run for him or something like that. It was it was just odd. There's clips of it. It looks strange. The next question is, Gareth Cross, what guy would have been a huge star if the territory survived but never made it after they collapsed? Bob, who do you think? I think I wish I had a little more time to think about this question, but that, what a great question. Um, Here, let me come back to you in a second. Give you a second to think about it. It's, I said Dr. Tom. He just Pritchard. he seemed like, yeah, I talked to Tom Pritchard. I think he was like maybe seven or eight years late. But I could see him going to Georgia, Florida, Mid-South, and having good runs in each one of those places. Almost like a Dick Slater. There was I could a see that. California Championship Wrestling head who went as the Terminator Steve Strong. And I know there's been a couple guys use that name in professional wrestling. Bodybuilder build wore these really creepy-looking white contact lenses. I just thought that he had so much more in him. And once uh, CCW folded up, I don't think I ever heard of him again. He went to Calgary, assuming we're talking about the same guy, and I'm pretty sure we are. He was in Calgary like 87 and 88, and he wasn't good in the ring, but he had a really good look, and he had a very nasty heel persona. I, To this day, I don't understand why he didn't have a bigger career, because he, he looked tailor-made for the WWF, quite frankly. I saw he stood out as just that guy who's head and shoulders above everybody else in California championship wrestling and seemed destined for major greatness. And I was wrong. (laughs) We all are sometimes. I think a guy who was hurt by the territories falling apart. I mean, Dick Slater was the top guy everywhere he went. And we're talking Georgia, San Antonio, Houston, mid-Atlantic, Georgia. Florida, and then when the territories broke apart, uh, Mid-South too, and as soon as that Mid-South run ended, it was like it was like he wasn't right for a national promotion. Um, another guy, and I've said this uh, on the show before, uh, who's probably born just a little bit too late was Mike Rotundo. How much do you think Slade had left in the tank? I'm just concerned you're going to run into like a, you know, I don't want to say Buzz Sawyer, never that bad, but I mean... Did you think he had, uh, if the territory stayed, do you think he could have been good for another 10 years, say? 
I might not say 10 years, but he was still really, really good when he was in Mid-South. And something seemed to drain out of him as soon as he got to the WWF. So I I don't know. I mean, 10 years, eh, but seven or eight years, I don't see why not. Yeah, maybe. If Joe Blanchard keeps paying, this is from Thomas Bain. If Joe Blanchard keeps paying the USA Network on time, do the following things still occur? And do they occur in the same time frame as they did in reality? First, does Vince buy out the Briscoes? Is WrestleMania still held in March of 85? And does um, Rick continue as a touring champ and not become exclusive to Crockett? Uh, let me take this one first. It's, uh, I would say, does Vince buy out the Briscoes? Um, yeah, because he doesn't have a spot. You need to get a TV spot, and that's the TV spot. You need some kind of a cable spot. So if he doesn't get the USA spot, then he has to get the TBS spot. Is WrestleMania still head March in 85? Yeah, I would say, I, yeah, because he would get the TBS spot. And do I think Ric Flair continues as the uh, touring champ? Probably has to, because I'm not sure Crockett, at that point, without that TV spot, can support him. Good answer. How about you, Bob? In order, yes, I think Vince will buy out the Briscoes. I think with the MTV backing, I don't think there was any way to prevent WrestleMania 1. I just don't think it would have been possible. Too many people had too much invested, and Ric Flair continuing as touring champ? Huh. I'm not sure. I'd like to think so, but your guess is as good as mine, truth be told. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, hey, that's what we do here. We have a, a lot of fun speculating what if scenarios i mean it i mean i used to watch the show the southwest championship wrestling show on usa network and it was right around the time that we started getting a lot of wrestling on television by that point we were getting two hours of wwf tv in syndication we were getting world-class championship wrestling obviously this is boston area we were getting wtbs on cable And unless I'm forgetting, and let's not forget, too, that WTBS had the Saturday morning show and the Sunday evening shows, which were kind of throwaway shows, but hey, it's wrestling. And then Sunday, USA Network had Southwest Championship Wrestling. And just to take you back a little bit to that world, I mean, USA Network at that time was a really weak cable network. I mean, they were showing stuff. On prime time, I don't know. I don't know about prime time, but they were showing stuff that I was familiar with because it was stuff that would be on, you know, early in the morning or late at night five years ago on UHF stations. That's how deep they were digging for content. Also, the Southwest program was definitely a lot more minor league in terms of not only the wrestlers and the wrestling, but the uh, in terms of production. You just couldn't help but notice. That compared to Georgia, WWF, World Class, etc., this was kind of a minor league promotion. So I think it was definitely good that Vince got that outlet. I think it benefited USA Network as much as it did the WWF. But I don't think if Joe Blanchard had stayed on, I don't think it would have made that much difference. Real quick, because I don't even know anything about this. Um, from Dylan, was there a flair for Luger trade 92 or 93? Was there, John? No, there was not. You you can't trade wrestlers the way yeah, I didn't uh, think so. Baseball teams can trade players. Yeah, it was it was a totally different thing. Luger 
had made his decision to leave for the WWF, and it was right around the same time, so I can see it. Uh, Flair started to get the itch to come home uh, and work WCW. Okay, and last one we have from Thomas Dauber. Climaxing in the 1990s, you had the school of thought that a professional wrestler had to be at least six feet and weighing 220. Would you have agreed that th- with this sentiment when you started to watch wrestling, and have you ever changed your mind about it, Bob? No, Let's I say want you. professional wrestlers to be bigger and tougher than me. I think that's part of the mystique of it. That was part of the initial attraction. That's why there's no weight categories. They're all heavyweights. Yeah. I this mean, and gonna, just well, throw this in real quick. I mean, you know, wrestling has had a junior heavyweight division, and I know there were some territories where that got over big time, but I mean, out here, it just did not because the guys weren't big enough. And with the exception of that one or two Tiger Mask matches, the matches, they, they weren't really, they didn't stand out enough quality wise to make up for the fact that, hey, you know, we know, base, we quote unquote know that a middle of the card heavyweight could mop the floor with one of these guys. I think it entirely depends on where you grew up watching wrestling. I mean, up in the Northeast, yeah. You, I mean, the bigger, the better, as it was here. And, and as far as, you know, Bob, I think that was the same way in the Midwest, too. Uh, you know, where you would, you know, promote the bigger guys. But if you go down south, down to Memphis, down to Alabama, down to, you know, you had a lot of really good smaller guys down there. And then there's always the inflation factor in wrestling. Bern was always billed as being 235. Red Bastine was always billed as being 235. They were both ballpark 200, but, you know, who was I to know that? There's no way to know. I mean, I, I bought that in the Heights, too. I bought that hook, line, and sinker until I started getting the Observer. It works as long as you scale everybody. Yeah, good point. by comparison, yeah, by comparison, they all kind of look the same. It's only when you're, like, standing next to them in live show, you're like, wait a minute. That was my disillusionment with Neil Moscross. For the love affair that magazines had with him in the 70s, finally see him in person. And, you know, he still had the physique, but what? He's a tiny little guy. Phil laughed his camera adds six inches. <laughs> I mean, my Mascaris moment when I first saw him in 77 after reading about him in the magazines for a year, but still, I thought I was going to see the most exciting guy that I'd ever laid eyes on, and he was just okay. And at the time, even as a kid, I'm like, wow, maybe, you know, you just are holding him to too high a standard. And then I'd watch him again, and he wasn't that good. But if I may answer that question, first of all, I think every question submitted to Stick to Wrestling should begin with the word climaxing from now on. But secondly, there has to be kind of a, um, like, I wouldn't say a size parameter. Um, when Bill Parcells was the coach of the New England Patriots, he had size parameters. Like, you had to be X height, X weight at this position, or he's not drafting you. I think that's kind of staunch. Like, you know, Let's give up an inch or two and get Zach Thomas, who can play this game. But at the same time, there has to be some sort of limit on how small a guy can be. There's some guy in AEW who is just too damn small. He's like 5'2", and I just can't take him seriously. But at the same time, you can have a guy like Chavo Guerrero or a Ricky Morton who is small, but the fans believe it when... Ricky Morton would get in the ring with someone huge like Dr. Death, Steve Williams, 
people wouldn't say, oh, Ricky Morton can't possibly fight this guy because, yeah, again, that's part yourself of the... on that. <laughs> OK, people still came out to see it, though. True. So, yeah, the, I, I understand the line gets drawn somewhere, but I'm just not sure where that somewhere would be. I think there has to be a happy medium between the AEW guy you just mentioned and the freak show that WWF became. Yeah. Um, it's, it's proportion. Around the turn of the century. Yeah, I mean... It's all about are. proportion. If you have one guy who's who of a certain size, you have to have like everybody kind of in the ballpark. So if you're going to go big, everyone's got to be big because the small guy's going to stand out. But on the other hand, if you're going to have a smaller roster, everybody has to be small. You didn't have a lot of giant guys going into Memphis until later on. Um, they had some big guys in Memphis. I'm trying to, I mean, I know, uh, yeah, oh yeah. But I mean, how big is Austin Isle? He's only two, what, two fifty? Oh, I mean, he was a a pretty blown up two fifty. Yeah. I mean, he was more jacked, but he wasn't huge. Even Savage was only two thirty. I mean, you had the stomper come in, but that was a special occasion. You know, sometimes you would have guys come in for spots, but you know, you couldn't have some guy twice the size of Lawler. They did on occasion, though, but that here's the thing. Like, for example, they had Hulk Hogan come in in 1981, but it was, you know, it was an exception. And you have, OK, well, Jerry Lawler is so damn tough at his size. He can take this guy on. The, the important thing was that the people bought it. That works as long as you only have Hogan in for the couple months that he was there. Uh, he was there a couple of months, I want to say in 78, and then in 81, I think he made, I'm pretty sure it was a one-and-done appearance at the Mid-South Coliseum. And if memory serves, he was on Jerry's team most of the time. Uh, in 78, 79, he was a good guy, and then when he came yeah. back in 81, he was a heel managed by Jimmy Hart. But again, that's the exception that proves the rule, because you always, as long as everyone's small, it makes sense. I, I mean, I, I guess I, I just, you know, I think as long as the fans buy it, you know, but I mean, you're really pushing the parameters. The number one guy who pushed the parameters was Ricky Morton. Let's face it. I mean, he was just way smaller than everyone else, but he was over like crazy. And Dundee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In Memphis, that is true. Bill Dundee was a very small guy who, who managed to get over in that environment. God bless him. So, again, it's how you're educated. So half the fans hear us talking are like, what are you talking about? What's wrong with a smaller guy like that? And then the other half are going to be like, oh, of course, it's ridiculous because it was different in each territory. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, there's got to be a limit somewhere. I mean, you know, a guy who's four feet tall is just not going to be a, uh, you know, you're just not going to be a pro wrestler in the heavyweight division. It's just, you know, not realistic enough. I would once again like to thank Bob Parsons for coming on and giving us a really good segment. And now we're going to do a a slightly shorter segment because something was released on YouTube like last week. It was a Mid-South Wrestling show. It looked like it had a match or maybe a segment missing, but the whole thing went about 35 minutes. It was completely awesome. It was dated April 2nd, 1981. And that seems just dead right to me. And I've brought in Brandon Hefner to talk about this with the Stick to Wrestling audience. How are you, sir? Doing well. Thanks for having me back, man. And I felt the same way. It was uh, pretty amazing to see this thing just kind of pop up out of nowhere. 
and the guy's got nothing else really on his channel that I've I've checked. So <laughs> I just wonder where the hell it came from. You know, I, I know. I mean, the show is almost 40 years old. It's something I have never seen. I mean, I thought, you know, I, I, I have like not, I had or have like 90 to 95 percent of the stuff that's out there for this. Just, you know, appear was really cool. But anyway, um, first match was Don Diamond against Mike Hudspeth. And this goes to show you how much wrestling has changed. Bill Watts is doing commentary, and, along with Boyd Pierce, and Watts talks about how Don Diamond was getting over the flow. Yes, I thought that was actually pretty amazing. You know, and I don't know if he really had dropped any weight. I definitely remember Diamond from, you know, the introducing and whichever Raptor maggot was, and he kind of disappeared as far as, you know, I think, did you say he ended up a truck driver or owned a trucking company or something? But I yeah. thought he was really good, and the wrestling was really mat-based, you know, the whole match. Yeah, I, I, I always liked Don Diamond. He made an appearance um, in Madison Square Garden once, and according to him, he had been in the wrestling business for like five years, and he basically said, hey, if I haven't made it yet, I'm not going to make it. I'm moving on. And, 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 you know, it sounded like he didn't have a, a great love for the road or he wasn't like addicted to the business like a lot of guys are. Sure. And some, you know, I, I just wonder how much it matters when somebody is a fan when they are a kid to whether they just kind of got into it because they were told, you know, seen and said they had a nice build and, hey, you want to try this, and they just didn't kind of have the passion for it. So who knows if that played into it or not as well. I mean, didn't he work in Florida a bit as well, maybe? that was, Yeah, he was – Florida was more or less his main territory. That's where he started in, like, 79, 80. He was back there, like, 81, 82. And right around the beginning of 83 is when he said, like, he kind of tapped out on the business. Yeah, and it might have been, you know, maybe it was one of those things if he would have come along and 10 years earlier, he would have done a lot better because it was, you know, even by 83, you know, you, we know how fast things changed that year just in, oh, yeah. in the WWF even. So uh, that, that business was, was changing quickly. And, you know, not everyone likes Jim Wilson, the guy who exposed the business and wrote that book and all that good stuff. But I mean, Jim Wilson made a really good point about the wrestling business. He's like a lot of guys cannot get out of the wrestling business because they don't want to get up in the morning and have a real job. Sure. Yeah. It's and the truth. What's, what's funny is that's the one book pretty much out of all of them that I haven't read. And I guess I, I need to pick it up and I'm sure I know enough now to kind of pick out the half truths and, and that kind of stuff out of it. Cause I'm sure there's, you know, some of his bias in there, but it was, it's a pretty good book. I take it. Oh, it, it, the book was okay. I thought the book was, you know, I'm not, it, it was okay. It's not, you know, definitely don't read it or make, don't, you know, make sure you read it. He told a story in there. He played uh, football at the university of Georgia. And mm -hmm. he said when he was a freshman, he got mad and he challenged the entire football team and everyone backed down. And that has zero <laughs> chance of being true. I mean, if you right. did that Nashua High, they'd find you in the plumbing the next day. Exactly. Goddamn freshman. Get out of here. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Diamond's opponent is someone named Mike Hudspeth, who I have never seen before. Didn't look that good. Just one quick comment. I've known of two people in the world with the last name Hudspeth. 
this guy is number two, and number one is Mark Hudspeth, who is the head coach at the University of Louisiana Lafayette. So what a big coincidence. I'll tell you one thing that I like that he did, and it was sort of instinct. Uh, Diamond dropped down, was about to do a fireman's carry, or he might have thought he was going to do a fireman's carry, but he just wanted him to go back, and he instinctively dropped back instead of going over. So I thought that was one cool thing that he did which isn't much, but I noticed it. (laughs) You know what? I didn't notice it. You're better than I am. Second match, we have the Junkyard Dog teaming up with Dick Murdoch against Larry Booker, who was about to become a Moon Dog, and someone named Hans von Brauner. And I do not like it when jobbers have gimmicks. No, and I, you know, I made a note last night to ask you. I'd never heard of this Von Bronner guy, or I didn't notice him. Obviously, Booker I knew from the Blonde Bombers in, you know, Memphis. So he was sort of a name, but the other guy, I have no clue who he was. No, I, I've never heard the name, and I, I looked at him. I've never seen him before, so obviously he was. One of those guys trying to break into the business, and like many of them, are not successful. One thing I always liked about Mid-South, you mentioned Larry Booker as one of the Blonde Bombers. They usually had some top-flight undercard talent. They didn't just have, like, Frank Williams and Jose Estrada like the WWF did. Well, yeah, and that always helped the younger guys work, you know, or learn to work, because they were more of a carpenter or whatever than a just straight jobber, so... You get a guy like Booker or Latham, whatever his real name was, and he comes in and, you know, from work in the Mid-South Coliseum in Louisville and everywhere, I think he probably had a lot to teach a young guy back then. Yeah, absolutely. Junkyard Dog, if you, the listener, have only seen the WWF or, God forbid, the WCW version of Junkyard Dog, you need to see him here. He is an absolute stud. Yeah, just an animal. So thin waist, huge chest and shoulders, just insane. I, yeah. I agree. And he, could, he, he wasn't never a great worker, but they were smart in the way they used him. He didn't have long matches on TV, so you never got tired of the guy. And Murdoch and Dog just came in and started pounding on these guys. It really it was basically a tornado match, and the referee allowed it to go on. And Murdoch looked like he just about killed Booker with that brain buster. Yes. Yes, he did. It was, uh, or or did he, uh, I think he had the grappler up actually. I just watched it again this morning. I could be wrong, but, uh, whichever one it was. Yeah. He dropped him on his head pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they did the thing where the brain buster and the power slam came simultaneously. So it was a, a fun, but short match. Do you have any other observations you'd like to share on this match? No, I mean, you pretty much explained it just kind of, you know, um, they did it sure as a treat for the fans. They just came in and and wrecked people. And, you know, this was two years before the Road Warriors. So, you know, I'm sure people had seen it somewhat, but just a total destruction to get those two guys over for what was coming up. You know, the cards that they were obviously promoting and then the Superdome deal as well, I guess. Oh, yeah. Now we get to the stake on the plate. Bad, bad Leroy Brown and Ernie Ladd do a local promo. Now, let me give everyone a little bit of background on how we got here. Junkyard Dog is wearing a patch on his eye, and it's because he has double vision in that eye. So basically, he needs not to use it. 
This happened when he was blinded by the Freebirds in New Orleans about a year earlier, which led to just an insane scene from what I've heard. People like, you know, dousing dogs' eyes with beer and soda in the audience, trying to dilute what Michael Hayes just put in. And JYD had been wrestling with the patch for about a year. Ernie Ladd and Leroy Brown say that they're going after his eye. That is remarkable. That is so vicious. And in a way, it makes it real. They wouldn't be allowed to do it today or, you know, even a, a little while ago. The thing that struck me about Brown, you know, I'd seen him in Georgia and stuff, but he'd really played up the kind of psycho deal or in Memphis. And he was definitely doing that here, you know, just kind of had his thumb in his eye with the, you know, bugging out and just saying, <laughs> again, your eye over and over. So he was definitely an intimidating uh, big guy. And Ernie is just Ernie. I've always loved the lad. Just amazing, you know. Oh, yeah. And the whole poster and the, you know, who they've already taken out and who they're going to take out. But yeah, just just great old school stuff. No doubt. Oh, it, it was great old school stuff. They were doing a deal where Ladd and Brown kept injuring junkyard dogs of tag team partners. They wanted JYD, but he wasn't as easy to get as someone like Killer Carl Cox. And Ladd comes out with this poster board with pictures of the guys that they've already taken out. And they've got open spots for number five and six, which is going to be JYD and Dick Murdoch. Yes. And one of the things that Watts did that made him so good on the commentary was he mentioned how tough that Murdoch knew that Cox was because he'd had his previous wars with him and how that he, if, if, even if he didn't like those two, he definitely respected them because of what they did to Cox to, to take him out, you know, showing oh, that yeah. even, even he could be scared of him. So, and then the interview ends with Ernie Ladd looking into the camera and saying how disgusted he was that junkyard dog would team with a redneck. <laughs> exactly. That was, that was beautiful. And, it, you know, it just, it, that, it made it all seem so real. Like, you weren't going to go to see a show if you were going to that event they were promoting. You were going to see four big guys fight to the death. Yes, and, you know, that's, I try to watch the newer stuff and like it, and it's just like, it's so obvious they don't mean it. And, and back then, we all knew that something was up, but there was always two or three things per hour that you were just like, you know, that's, that makes me wonder those guys there make me wonder. And they were just so good because they did it every single night. And then, you know, the interviews every single week and they, you know, maybe Watts gave them some bullet points or whatever, but it was all on them and it was their own words. And just that emotion's not there anymore. And that was just, pure emotion you know that had you know people going crazy down there because you you know you had a lot of blacks and then you had a lot of rednecks as well so watts definitely knew his audience and how to market to him for sure no he, he was not shy about that i you know you were talking about how it's how it seemed real and how it's not the same nowadays about three years ago they did a segment on the smackdown post show where they were talking with the Miz. And it was the Miz and Maurice, and they were they were in the middle of a feud with John Cena. I remember and, that. Yeah, and Miz made it seem like I mean, I took take a step back. I'm like, something is up for real between these two guys, and whether or not there was, 
Miz got my attention. It was like he was like the one guy in the last 10 years who could pull that off. And you just wonder if it was because they let him loose because it was an after, you know, deal segment that wasn't. And they just said, go out and do it. And he didn't have to worry about hitting every little thing they said. And he just, uh, just kind of <laughs> did it. And, and it, but I, I, I actually remember that as well. Yeah, it was, it was a it. great segment. All right. Now, next match, the grappler and the super destroyer taking on Kelly Kaniski and Ashrahara, who I, I had no idea. First of all, that Ashrahara was in mid South. No clue. Didn't don't remember seeing him in, in results in the, magazines or or anything or any other territories as well so i just wonder you know if he maybe came into this would have been after the funks were gone from amarillo though so probably wouldn't have gone there to work but um he was definitely a tough guy and in stan hansen's book he's got a good story about another reckless hansen story hitting him from behind when he was stepping out of the ring during a tag match and he hit him too hard and he stumbled and smacked his face on the ring post and, you know, just gashed him all the way around his eye and yeah. put a huge horseshoe cut. And he, you know, said the next night he asked him about it and he just smiled at him and said, you know, it's good for business. So definitely a tough guy. And Hanson really put him over as a tough guy and one of his favorite opponents over there as well. I, I had no idea. I mean, I, you know, that's one of the books on my list I absolutely need to read. It's only been out like 10 years and I haven't gotten around to it yet, but I, it's really I definitely good. will. All right. I will take that. As a matter of fact, you know what? I will order it today. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me see. So we've got the grappler. Now, a lot of people don't know about this. The grappler got a huge push. In Mid-South around this time, he was the North American champion for like nine or ten months. They did a gimmick where Ted DiBiase injured him with the figure four leg lock, and he came back like six weeks later with an orthopedic boot. The boot was like two inches taller or had like a two-inch heel on it. The, The other one didn't have, and Grappler explained, yeah, this way I keep the weight off of my bad leg. Oh, okay. That makes sense. But you know, as a wrestling fan, I'm kind of like, okay, something's going on here. <laughs> exactly. And the next thing grappler is like loading up that boot against Ted DiBiase and he kicks him in the stomach and DiBiase act- acted like it killed him. Right. Right. And you know, that's the first time I remember anybody doing that gimmick or seeing it in the magazines. I'm sure somebody probably might've done it before, but me personally, that's the first time I'd seen it. And I definitely remember seeing pictures of his feud with Wahoo in the magazines and Wahoo laying through the ropes all bloody from, you know, getting kicked in the head with it. And um, he was also the Louisiana champ at the same time on this show, which I thought was, you know, odd that Watts pushed him that hard for him to be, you know, the dual champ. Yeah, he I loved the old Mississippi and Louisiana titles. I thought that was so unique. And I understand why they had to get rid of it. Watts actually went on TV and explained that, hey, we can't have a Louisiana title, a Mississippi title, an Arkansas title, an Oklahoma title, a Texas title. So they got to go. Right. And that's when he started pushing the TV title, if I recall correctly. Yeah, and, you know, that's that's just one of the things about him, his psychology. And he always explained it to everybody. So everything made logical sense. And that's why it was such a good show for so long. Yeah. 
I, I loved Mid-South Wrestling. To this day, I, I miss it. I'm glad it's available on the WWE Network. Grappler and Super Destroyer had a manager named Frank Dusick. I mention that because this guy was practically invisible. I have no idea what his purpose was out there. Me neither. And then a year later, he's in, you know, world-class. Wasn't he Texas champ or something for a long time? This was before the the Freebirds came in, obviously, and maybe he was just a body. But, you know, I had remembered him being a manager, but you're right. He was faceless. He was a decent wrestler, I guess. No color or anything, but um, maybe Watts was just giving him a job because he was a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> you, never, you never know in wrestling. Uh, <laughs> Kelly Kaniski. Now, here's a guy, Ted DiBiase was talking about him once. He said that Kaniski, Kelly Kaniski, was the single least charismatic wrestler ever. And here's a guy, he's Gene Kaniski's kid, so right there, you've got an advantage ahead of everyone. Your dad's a former NWA champion, and he wasn't bad in the ring, but Ted was right. This guy was colorless. Yeah, um, anywhere he ever went, you know, and I could, you know, I was only 11, you know, back then getting the mags and whatnot, but even then I could just kind of see, unless something really changed that, He probably wasn't going to do much. And, you know, Gene was a smidge before my time, but just from seeing him in the magazines, you knew who he was and he would, that he was a giant in the business. But yeah, I didn't, didn't really like Kelly and he didn't show me much in this seeing him, you know, almost 40 years later either. And I'm sure he was a great athlete and all that, but just kind of never hit with anybody, I guess. (laughs) No, uh, his brother, Nick, I thought was actually had some potential, but nothing really happened for him either. Let me see. They had a cool finish. First, Super Destroyer does a standard like shoulder breaker on the knee and then Grappler drives Hara's shoulder into the mat for the finish. I thought that was a cool combination. Absolutely. Yeah. And I always loved Super Destroyer. I always thought he was great, especially with, you know, him and Mass Superstar together were phenomenal. Yeah, I, I mean, sadly, this we're coming, we're nearing the end of the era of masked wrestlers, um, and that certainly would never fly, you know, now in the internet era. Sure, yeah, and you know, back then it was sort of like the kiss thing. They they could keep their identity, you know, unknown. I I remember forever wanting to know who who the hell exactly Mister Wrestling Two was because I'd never heard of Johnny Walker, you know, before him. I guess I was a little too young and. That's probably one of the first things I searched on the internet when I, you know, finally got it to try to find out who the heck the guy actually was. And then when I heard it was like, well, shit, I didn't know him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was perfect. Yeah. I mean, I remember they had a TV match in 81 or 82 with Andre the Giant against the Black Demon. I think it was uh, under a mask in the WWF. And at the end of the match, Andre just grabbed this guy by the mask and threw him, and the mask came off, and the arena went nuts wanting to know who this, you know, this jobber guy was under a mask. I mean, it created its own intrigue. Yeah, because you just didn't see that. I mean, the top guys would fight to get a guy's mask off, and it it just seemed like it was almost impossible to do. So when it, whenever it happens, people definitely popped for it. Yeah, I, it's it's. I mean, I've said this before. I mean, when I first started watching wrestling, the masked executioners were the WWF tag team champions. I was dying to know who they were. And, you know, it was a good comparison you just made, like the kiss thing. We all wanted to know what these four guys looked like without the makeup 
we cared for some crazy reason. Exactly. And, you know, no rhyme or reason to it. You just kind of, you just had to know and, <laughs> and wanted to know. But yeah, I've always thought it was a good comparison. All right. Next up, Junkyard Dog and Dick Murdoch do their interview uh, responding to Ladd and Brown. And I mean, once again, it's a great interview. Both guys are on. Both guys are, are serious enough. And, you know, they're coming to fight. Yes, for sure. And, you know, I don't know if it was a real tension um, because they were playing it up. But there was just kind of a weird vibe, I thought, with those two standing there. And then with some of the subject matter they got into that was, you know, was real underlying, you know, yes. almost subliminal. But maybe Murdoch was just such a pro that um, he was able to seem like there was just some kind of tension there. But, it, you know, I'm sure the subject matter had something to do with it as well. <laughs> Without naming names, you know, he said quite a bit during that. Uh, segment, yeah. actually. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, he, he made it subtle enough, but you know, I'm sitting there going, oh man, Dickie, calm down, but it worked. Yes, for sure. And, you know, I think the fans there loved seeing that together and those, those two come together to do that. But yeah, it was a pretty hot segment. I thought. Yeah, I would definitely, I mean, I'm a wrestling fan anyway, I would want to buy a ticket, but those two segments made me really want to buy a ticket. Anyway, main event, Jim Garvin against Leroy Brown. This is pre-gorgeous Jimmy Garvin, where he's just kind of a white meat baby face against Leroy Brown. One thing that I really liked Bill Watts doing is right away, he addressed the size difference between these two. And he says, Jim Garvin is winning because he has wrestling skill and he understands leverage. Exactly. That's the first thing I noticed as well. And it, it got it over because um, I, at first I was a little shocked. It's like he's dominating and then he's just explaining, you know, why? Because the basic wrestling, his, you know, older brother, cousin, uncle was Ronnie Garvin. He learned all the vicious stuff from them, but he decided to go the, you know, clean scientific route. And yeah, I thought that was really cool how Watts just kind of wove that in there and made the viewer kind of understand why Leroy wasn't just kind of kicking the snot out of him. Yeah. And you know what? Watts goes out there and I hate, I'm not putting down the, the modern product, but it's almost like, you know, you're, Sometimes when I watch like WWE today, it's almost like the the, the announcer. It's, it's the same thing as a video game. He's just out there, blah 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 blah. Watts is making point after point, driving everything home. Absolutely, yeah, that's just a huge difference, and I understand why the guys today have to do it. I'm sure some of them would have been great and you know the kind of old situation but it, you know if they've got vent screaming in their ear about you know she'll this and she'll that and like i said i understand why they have to do it that way and why it's different now it's just just not as fun to me you know no, definitely not i mean I, you know i haven't watched raw in a long time i watch the pay-per-views but i don't watch raw but i mean they would drive me nuts with that whole download the app every five minutes thing anyway one thing i wanted to mention Watts goes out and he's talking about the fight they had at the Superdome where Duran quit against Sugar Ray Leonard. And yes. Watts says, oh, you know, we don't have guys quitting in the middle of the fight like uh, Sugar Ray Robinson did. And he couldn't think of Duran's name. Yeah, and, he couldn't think of either of their names. He got yeah. them both wrong. And I'll tell you something, like maybe two years ago, I was just like, aha, but I get it. Now that we do a podcast for an hour a week, 
I do understand the brain fart that Bill Watts had. It happens. You're yeah. out here and the bullets are flying. Yeah, and, um, you know, he was probably mortified himself because he didn't slip up like that much. But no. I, I, I did kind of chuckle, and I immediately got on uh, Google and looked up when the fight was. And I guess it was just the previous November, so it hadn't been that long, you know, but just whoosh, you know. Yeah. Another cool thing um, that I thought he did during that first match when he talked about Boyd going on vacation to Hawaii, him mentioning buying a new plane and going to California to learn about some of the deal. I don't know if you caught that during, but I guess he was even flying back then. It was just kind of funny to hear him talking about owning his own plane even even back then. Oh, yeah. I mean, Watts did not care. I mean... Back in, was it 86, we would get, like, weekly updates on what uh, college Eric Watts was going to play quarterback at. Right. He'd, play, he'd be playing his kids' high school football highlights on the wrestling show. Yeah, so he definitely had a, a nice size ego, but that's probably why he was uh, as successful as he was as well. I couldn't agree more, but anyway... <laughs> We have a DQ finish. Uh, the, well, it, it appears that Leroy Brown has won the Louisiana title after a ref bump. A second ref comes in and counts Garvin out. The first ref takes the title away and says that Brown had used a chain. The crowd goes nuts. Everyone's jumping up and down because Brown didn't really win the title. Yes, and they knew. Um We'd been so conditioned by then, you know, even at 10 and 11, I knew you'd see it happen to Dusty almost every week somewhere, either Georgia or Florida. And you just knew as soon as that second ref came in, it wasn't going down like, and I think I even mentioned when we were doing the group watch on Facebook, I I, I just wrote, I knew it, (laughs) you know, I just knew that he wasn't taking the belt. So, but that, yeah, the crowd went nuts and, um, they loved their baby faces back then. There wasn't any gray area. They cheered who they thought was the good guy and, and booed the bad guy for sure. Mid-South for sure. I mean, up here it was very similar, but it wasn't like as straight out as Mid-South. I would be afraid sure. to go to one of those arenas and cheer for like you know Ted DiBiase when he was a heel. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love some, you know, Corny's and the guy's stories about the heat that they got there. And I'm sure it was even worse in the 70s, you know, because by 84, things had even kind of calmed down and things were pretty crazy. I can't imagine some of the heat the Freebirds got during that dog angle had to have been insane. Oh, I mean, we, we've heard the story about how some guy, they were going to watch a JYD and some guy in the audience says, uh, don't worry, dog, I got your back. And he shows him a loaded gun. Yeah, I was just thinking about that very thing. Exactly. All right. So, so the referee. Now, oh, another detail I like. The referee comes over to the desk, explains why he called for disqualification. And he, you know, he did it. It was quick. He wasn't putting heat on himself. It just here's what happened. And Garvin's still the champion. So, Lad, Ernie Ladd had come out to congratulate Brown on his new championship while this is going on. So now the heels decide they're going to go after Jim Garvin. Two on one, two big guys, Leroy Brown and Ernie Ladder coming after Garvin. So what does he do? He leaves. I thought that was brilliant. Yes. I mean, that's exactly what what I would do. And, (laughs) you know, Garvin wasn't that big anyway. So to me, that just goes back to the psychology of Watts. He told him, you you hightail it. You're not going to stand and fight. Because I think he thought that's what most people would really do. And 
but yeah, just those little tiny things made a huge difference in the whole psychology of it. No doubt about it. And most baby faces would sit there and try to take on these two guys and wind up getting killed. Garvin just says, nope, I'm out of here. I love um, it. I'm out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brandon, thank you for coming on on this segment. I wanted to get it out as quickly as I could because it just got on YouTube and you want to watch it as soon as you can. It was really good. Thank you again, Brandon. Absolutely, man. No problem. Appreciate it. All right. That wraps up our special segment with Brandon Hefner. We wanted to get it out there as quickly as possible because, I mean, let's face it, everyone's going to be watching that show. Uh, So, yeah, that was a fun segment. Thank you, Brandon Hefner. That wraps up another fun week of Stick to Wrestling. I want to thank our convivial co-host, Sean Goodwin, for everything he does. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols! Go Vols!